0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Ika Ekster and his new book, Comics and the Origins of Manga, a Revisionist History. It was published by Rutgers University Press this year, Um, Aika is currently an independent scholar based in California. So this book is a thorough study of the evolution of Japanese manga under the influence of Euro-American comics and more importantly, how closely they're linked. Well, welcome Aika. Thank you so much for joining us today on the channel.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So can I assume you read a lot of manga?
1: I actually don't read that many modern manga, which a lot of people are surprised by when I tell them that. Um, I, I do read my fair share, but probably not as much as uh, people might expect from the fact that I've devoted several years of my life to uh, studying the history of manga. Um, I have read a lot of pre-war manga, um, but yeah, not a lot of contemporary stuff.
2: That's interesting. So what prompted you to write a whole book on the history of manga?
1: I've always been interested in manga and comics as an art form. So my PhD training was in comparative literature. So I've always been interested in in different forms of narrative. And I'd always wondered why manga and comics, so like European and American comics, right, and Japanese manga, uh, basically look so similar, right? They function in very similar ways. Their, their narrative and formal structures are essentially the same, despite some stylistic differences. Um, and all of the histories of manga that I read basically portrayed manga as sort of this, the product of this gradual evolution from medieval picture scrolls or even earlier forms of art. And so I was really interested in that question. And originally, I I hadn't set out to write about the history of manga specifically. Uh, originally, I was interested more in questions of translation. And I'd, I'd learned from Frederick Schott's book, Manga, Manga, about the existence of these American comic strips in pre-World War II era Japan. And I thought that was really interesting that, you know, like almost a uh, hundred years, well, actually like a hundred years ago that people in Japan were reading these American comic strips. I thought from the perspective of translation that that was a very interesting topic. So it was only when I started looking at these comic strips more closely and looking for more of them that I realized how many of them were there were in Japanese publications at the time. And also, and perhaps even more importantly, how much closer those comic strips looked, those foreign comic strips looked to modern manga than uh, did a lot of the works that were published written by Japanese authors at the time.
2: Fascinating. So in this book, how do you define manga and what are some of the features? Because uh, that, that was one question I had when, first start, when I first started reading the book. Is um, I, I kept thinking of the current day Japanese manga, say the ones on Shonen Jump, and I thought it, it sounded a bit different from what uh, your book was describing, so I wondered if you have a more um, specific definition of what you call manga in the context of your book.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question, and that's, a I think, a huge problem in the historiography of manga is that the term is often left undefined. And the reason why that's a problem is that the word actually has meant all these different things. So before the word anime for example became widely adopted in Japan, anime was just called manga, right? But when today people say manga and are talking about manga, they're they're not talking about anime, right? They're usually talking about comics specifically. And then of course you have the Hokusai manga. So during Hokusai's time, the word manga actually meant something very different. And a lot of times, the this connection of the word itself. So the fact that Hux, the Hokusai manga and also works by other artists at the time were called manga. Um, a lot of his his stories of manga try to portray that as sort of a connection between modern manga and works by artists such as Hokusai but the word manga actually went through a transformation in meaning so there is no actual connection between Hokusai's works and modern manga so one of the things that my book addresses is how the word manga actually came to describe comics primarily and of course the the word manga even when it when it started to describe comics it also meant graphic narrative more broadly such as picture stories which were more text heavy um, so the way I, I define I, I make a distinction in the book between picture stories and what I call audiovisual comics which I think is basically synonymous with comics because people define the, the term comics in much more expansive ways I'm trying to distinguish it from that so basically audiovisual comics I mean this, this uh, narrative form that essentially developed in the United States in the late 1890s in response to technologies like the phonograph, uh, photography, and film. So with the appearance of these technologies that could capture motion and sound, you see the appearance of first pantomime cartoons, these multi-panel cartoons that uh, essentially depict something without having to narrate it. Right? You see these short stories, usually four panels, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes only three panels or even two that depict sort of these these brief vin- vignettes um, without needing narratorial explanation, which was a huge difference compared to previous works of narrative. So if you're familiar with the the picture stories in Europe, for example, by by um, artists such as Rudolf Tupfer or Wilhelm Busch. Um, those were very text heavy. So you always had an external narrator explaining what was going on. And the images kind of illustrated that story rather than narrating it primarily. So when you look at most of the works in sort of the early to mid 1800s in Europe, and then also the United States and, and also Japan and other countries um, that were also influenced by this tradition uh, that was spreading with sort of colonialism and the the sort of the spread of your, your American culture around the globe. Um, the, the innovation, basically, of pantomime cartoons, where something was just shown to you as opposed to narrated, then later enabled the creation of what I call audiovisual comics, where the audio component was added. So with the spread of the phonograph and sound recording technology, uh, cartoonists in the United States uh, try to depict sort of this new experience of being able to hear recorded voices, which of course had never been able, uh, you, you never had been able to, to hear that in the entirety of human existence. And of course, to us today, right? It's completely natural that we hear a voice and there's no person there, right? We hear, we listen to the radio, we watch a YouTube video. But at the time, that was a crazy experience for people to, to hear a voice and, and you see that reflected in cartoons and in, in in European cartoons, American cartoons, Japanese cartoons at the time, where, for example, one of the the Japanese manga, one of the earliest sort of audiovisual comic strips, actually features an old man listening to the radio and he says, Oh, it's almost soon. They're going to have people jumping out of that horn, right? It was really for people. It was really this insane experience that there was a voice, but not a person. And so around 1900 in the late 1890s, American cartoonists made jokes about this. So almost all of the cartoons that featured some kind of sound were about this experience of hearing voices without having a person there and so gradually these jokes uh led to the the incorporation of sound as a regular element into works of graphic narrative and so that is essentially how modern comics are the the basics of modern comics, right? Where you you don't need a narrator to explain what's going on. You just have characters actually addressing each other, talking to each other directly. And so that developed in the United States and then exploded in popularity. Like today, it's it's kind of hard for us to imagine because comics, um, well, now there's this resurgence, of course, because of superhero comics, but comics and comic strips were basically one of the two major forms of entertainment for people in in the early 1900s. And this form of narrative then spread all over the world, wherever sort of the same technological innovations were becoming popular, right? Where people were watching movies and listening to phonograph or gramophone records, that's also where comics then became popular because it was sort of the similar experience, right? Where you consume something that was mimetic. Even though, of course, the the writings on the page, it was still as though these characters were actually talking to one another. So it was kind of like watching a movie or like listening to the radio. And so this form then is introduced to Japan in the 1920s, um, even though there had been some some earlier uh, introductions that had not quite caught on. It's only in the 1920s when this form is introduced to Japan and it's just, massively popular. Maybe more so, uh, the same thing happened in, in, like I said, in many countries around the world, but there are few or perhaps no countries outside of the United States where this form catches on as it did in Japan. And basically that established the the basic form of modern manga.
2: That is so interesting. Is this what, um, is, uh, what you refer to as graphic narrative in the book?
1: so i use the term graphic narrative as sort of a catch-all term the way that some scholars use comics as basically a synonym for sequential art so some people um david kunsley for example or scott mcleod right talk about comics as something that um, basically encompasses everything where you have multiple images that narrate or help narrate or illustrate a story and because I'm using the term comics more specifically as audiovisual comics, because that is, I think, the way most people use the term today. So that's why I'm using the term graphic narrative as sort of this, this catch-all, this all-encompassing term to describe both picture stories and audiovisual comics, or anything that uses images to narrate or help narrate or even illustrate a story.
2: That's um, fascinating. And I was wondering, so because I'm a early modernist, And I'm sure you've heard the story of how people connect uh, modern day manga to early modern Japanese um, picture books or even painting scrolls, like the famous one from the pre modern, from the medieval period, which is kind of like a non narrative um, drawings only, but with minimal uh, textual description of birds and animals. Um, a lot of people think that's the beginning of Japanese manga. Yeah. But would you consider a graphic narrative as one of the features that kind of debunk this conception?
1: So that's that's a really interesting question because yes. Yeah, so the you're talking about the Choju Giga, right? The the scrolls of what is it? The scrolls of frolicking animals is usually how it's translated into English. And I love the Chozu The Chozu is great. I mean, I they while I was living in Japan, they showed it at the Tokyo National Museum, and you had to wait an, three hours in line to see the actual thing. Um, and then you, you had to very slowly walk past it while the security guards were hushing everybody, shushing every uh, no hush, um, <laughs> hurrying everybody along to make sure that that the line wouldn't be much longer than three hours. And then uh, they actually split the thing into two parts. So if you wanted to see the second half, you had to come back and again, wait in line for three hours, and which I did. So I've spent like 10 hours of my life to, to look at the Choju Giga in total. Um, and uh, it is a wonderful piece of art. And it's it's... The style is very timeless, which I think is partly why people are so quick to connect that to modern manga because it really looks like something you could draw today and it would still be be seen as something that is that is current contemporary essentially. Um, and well let me let me start in a different way. So the the theory that the Choju Giga is an early manga that was actually started. In 1924, by a manga artist who sort of wrote the first book-length attempt at a history of manga, and uh, even he said that there's no there's no actual like linear connection between the Choujou Giga and other forms of art that he considers manga. Uh, but after him, basically every subsequent or almost all subsequent histories sort of made that claim, and then of course. For ex- you have people like Tezuka Osamu, for example, who then actually also incorporates a scene from the Chojigiga into his manga, which then even makes it look even more like there's a connection. I mean, there is a connection, but it's sort of retroactive, right? It's people in modern times looking at the Chojigiga and calling it a manga, but there's nothing, there's no line essentially that you can trace from the Chojigiga, right? It's not like there were these picture scrolls, then gradually incorporated speech balloons or something like that, right? And I'm always very frustrated with these histories of manga that essentially go Choju Giga and then Hokusai manga and then Tezuka Osamu as though there's like this this kind of tr- transition between those three. But there's really there's no transition from the Choju Giga to like Hokusai's manga and then as I already mentioned before there's no sort of linear connection between the Hokusai manga and modern manga either uh so it is that yeah that that is a, a somewhat frustrating aspect of a lot of manga historiography but even so it's it's not just me that's that's claiming this out of nowhere even the the curator of the exhibition of the Chujugiga exhibition. Uh, in the the exhibition catalog, actually wrote an article about whether the Choju Giga is a manga or not. And he very clearly says, no, He says there's absolutely no connection. And actually looking at the Choju Giga as a manga or trying to see it that way may actually lessen your appreciation of it because that's simply not what it was. And if you look at it as a manga, you're basically not accepting it on its own terms. And I think that's that's a very valid uh, point.
2: Well, thank you for saying that. I will definitely bring what you said to my students and show them how they should not be connecting the dots this way. <laughs> now, to return to modern Japanese manga, um, I'm curious. So you mentioned um, as early as uh, 1924, there were already manga. Um, when they first appeared, I guess when they first picked up pace um, as a part of popular culture, what forms did they usually take? Like What platforms, were they published on, and who were the main audience?
1: Oh, that, so that's a great question. Um, so earlier I mentioned how the, the term manga sort of changed in meaning, right? So the the word manga starts appearing in the late 1700s in writing and various Japanese texts and usually refers to, uh, so I, I translate it as sketches, Um, they're not always, I mean, they're essentially line drawings, which also, of course, uh, enables um, the, the, this, uh, thesis or the proposition that this is connected to modern manga because of Japan's long tradition of, of line art, right? As opposed to, for example, European painting, oil paintings, right? You, you sort of, you, you paint areas and that creates a figure. Whereas in line drawing, you draw the outline of something. And Japan has a very long tradition of line art, going back to the Choju Giga and even before that. So that, that makes it very easy to, to see, to look at something like the Choju Giga or the Hokusai Manga and think, oh, this looks kind of similar, right? Because it's all line art. And this long and rich tradition of line art may very well be, uh, have been a huge factor in why Japanese audiences were so receptive to cartooning and comics. But so this term in the the late 1700s and early 1800s meant sort of these kind of sketches. It was probably used kind of um, self-deprecatorily. It was like, this is not like super great art, right? It's like a a loose sketch. And there's a whole uh, etymology behind the word manga that may go back to the Chinese name of a bird that sort of used its beak to sort of draw lines on the water in sort of more or less random ways. Uh, that's sort of the only real etymology that that has been proposed for for the word manga. But it doesn't have sort of this often it's translated as like whimsical pictures or something like that, right? But it never had sort of this this essential meaning. It was probably a word that that was picked up in some way, it it meant something that was sort of like rough like sketches or out like line art. And so it's really only in the 1890s then when a cartoonist by the name of Imaizumi Ipio, uh who actually went to San Francisco to study cartooning. So he was trained or at least wanted to be trained as a, as a cartoonist in in sort of American styles. And he wasn't successful. People rejected him supposedly because he wasn't familiar enough with American culture. Uh, to basically draw cartoons that would be funny to American audiences. But he brings back uh, a whole bunch of cartoons from American newspapers. And then he starts working for the Jiji Shinpo, which was uh, run by um, Fukuzawa Yukichi, this huge important figure in in the modernization of Japan, who was his uncle. So with a little bit of nepotism, he finds his job at this newspaper and uh, he starts publishing these cartoons that he had brought with him from the United States in this newspaper. And these cartoons uh, include um, like pantomime cartoons, uh, what I've mentioned before, these silent cartoons that just depict something through images alone. Imaizumi then starts publishing these American cartoons and he actually starts using the word manga, which up to that point had been mostly describing these these images this this line art by Hokusai and other artists that was that was never narrative by the way which often people forget because there are panels in a lot of the Hokusai manga but they're not they never tell a narrative so Imaizumi then uses the word manga to describe these foreign cartoons and also cartoons that he draws himself based on this model um and the very first time that he actually uses the word manga in this sense is actually with a foreign cartoon and it's literally it literally says above the cartoon manga excerpted from a foreign newspaper, which probably comes as a shock to a lot of people who always who read these, these manga histories, right, that start with the Choju Giga and how the, how modern manga is such a, a traditional, essential Japanese art form that actually the beginnings of the modern word manga, right, in the sense of sort of sequential art and graphic narrative uh, it, it actually started with a foreign cartoon. And so um, that's how the, the word, the meaning of the word manga is, starts to change. And then at the same newspaper, Imaizumi is succeeded by Kitazawa Rakuten, who became uh, one of the most famous Japanese cartoonists of all time, who also was trained in Western cartooning uh, by an Australian artist and who then starts uh, a, a cartoon magazine called the Tokyo Puck and who succeeds Imaizumi at the Gigi Shinpo. And Kitazawa sort of inherits the the word manga from Imaizumi and keeps using it for uh, cartoons that are published in the jiji shimpo and starts this originally it's just a section of the newspaper called jiji manga and then that turns into a whole supplement and it is with the success of the supplement that so the, the word manga becomes more common in this new meaning of describing cartoons both narrative cartoons, also single panel cartoons, such as just caricatures of politicians and stuff like that. And so that's basically where the history of modern manga starts, right? The the history of manga is describing narrative art. So that only starts in the 1890s and sort of the the entire history before that, right? The Choju Giga, the Hokusai manga and stuff like that, there's, there's no connection between all of that and then the the these cartoons that are imported from abroad essentially and labeled as manga, so that's kind of where, where that all starts and then uh and you also have influenced by um european cartoonists so japan was not at that point isolated from the world at all and was eagerly importing um a lot of foreign culture i mean especially from europe and the united states and uh so manga essentially then develops this sort of this this broad field that has a variety of meanings still, like caricature, right? Political cartoons and picture stories. And Kitazawa actually uh followed american cartooning and american comic strips which start to proliferate around 1900 fairly closely and so you start seeing a lot of these elements then in manga that first appeared in american cartooning such as uh pain stars for example right so these, these like stars that show whether when a character is hit on the head and stuff like that that then already begins to show up in japan fairly early and Kitazawa, as early as uh, 1908, actually publishes a translation of an American comic strip in his magazine Tokyo Puck, and also writes picture stories himself that are based on uh, on an American comic strip. And so, the from the very beginning, right, you have this this strong influence from abroad that then is incorporated sort of into the the Japanese publishing landscape in in newspapers and magazines.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: That's so interesting to hear because nowadays Japan exports so so many manga works every year, and it's basically a cultural icon of Japan. So when Japan first started importing these works from European European countries and America, um, which is a major point that you uh, make in the book, is the close connection between Japanese manga and those from. Euro uh, American culture. So, what um, changes did Japanese manga artists have to make to adapt to a Japanese audience?
1: That's a, yeah, that's a very fascinating question. So. Um, basically up to the 1920s, right, when manga sort of starts to to flourish as sort of the the broader field of cartooning. And you have people writing these or uh, drawing these um, single-panel cartoons and multi-panel cartoons. And then the 1920s, 1923, to be precise, is when the the floodgates break open and you have this rush of publications that eagerly import uh, foreign comic strips, especially American ones when uh, a tabloid newspaper called the Asahi Graph uh, starts publishing George McManus's comic strip Bringing Up Father. And that becomes a huge sensation. And uh, what was really amazing to me when I started researching this is that Bringing Up Father was actually the longest running manga in Japanese history up until World War II. And that that is a fact that, for some reason, is just omitted from all manga histories. And uh, even on the part of, of Japanese scholars who are generally more familiar with, um, with the pre-war history of manga, or at least a lot of Japanese histories of manga are more detailed in that regard, bringing a father is often portrayed as something that was introduced, but not introduced in the sense of imported, but as sh- shokai saderu, like something that is a sort of showcase as though the Asahi Graph is like, look, look at this this comic that Americans are reading. But it was hugely popular in Japan. And you find ads featuring the characters. There was there was a stage play. So people were and, and the ads are found everywhere basically in, in all newspapers, whether they featured the strip or not. So based on that is evident that basically in the 1920s, almost every Japanese person knew of this comic strip. And again, it was the longest running manga and it was called a manga too. So it was these, a lot of these strips said Gaikoku manga, so like foreign manga or America or Beikoku manga, so like American manga. And uh, so because Bring a Father was so popular all of these other Japanese publications then rushed to, to also have an American comic strip because Bring a Father was so popular. And the popularity of these strips, of course, then induces uh, editors to tell their Japanese artists and their Japanese cartoonists, "Hey, draw something like this. I want something like this." Because, of course, it's much easier if you draw something right there in Japanese, because then you don't have to translate it. Right? You don't have to actually ship something from the United States to Japan and like look for. Uh, other publications from which you can copy these strips. You don't have to worry about licensing if it's an in-house cartoonist doing that. So that's basically how this this new form of what I call audiovisual comics, where characters talk to each other using speech balloons, and you see motion through like motion lines and these pain stars to show all of these things that ordinarily in a still image you wouldn't be able to see, such as sound and pain and motion.
2: Fascinating. And over the years, uh, as Japanese manga became so influential, do you think any of these um, audiovisual format that's um, more adapted to the Japanese audience have any influence back onto American comics?
1: Yeah, so of, of course, as everybody knows, right today, Japanese manga globally are bigger. The, the Japanese manga industry is much bigger than its American counterpart these days, and um, that the. Prime primary reason for that, I think, is that whereas in the United States in the nineteen fifties, you had a big anti comics movement where there were even congressional hearings uh, about the the threat that comics posed to American youth that like horror comics were leading children to become criminals, Batman and Robin were turning children gay, like all of these these outrageous claims um, were made in this moral panic that kind of mirrors what. Today, or at least a couple of years ago, we went through with video games, right? Whenever there's a new medium that is uh, consumed by children as well as adults, you have this moral panic where people start to worry about what, what influence this might have, what pernicious influence this could have. And so, in the United States, this anti-comics movement is quite successful. And uh, comics, up until the '40s, were basically very rich in content, and there was they were very diverse. But then, because of the comics code, which the comics industry adapts to prevent official censorship, you you have basically uh, blood and crime and sex and drugs. All of that it becomes taboo, so that disappears from comics, which basically means that it's very hard to tell the sort of more mature stories using comics. And so that's why American comics then becomes mostly superheroes, right? Because in superhero stories, no one ever bleeds, right? No one ever dies. So they're they're very sort of censorship friendly. And then you, have, of course, have Disney, right? Cartoon animals, because the same is true there. There's there's very little violence. There's no sex or drugs in, in Disney comics, but in Japan, uh there were some anti-comics movements but they were far less successful so in japan after world war ii uh you have this explosion in manga especially of course with the the success of, of tezuka Osamu and also Hasegawa machiko's um sazai-san uh that sort of lead comics to to prosper and flourish in japan in ways that uh basically were completely curtailed in the United States due to the anti-comics movement. So it's really in the 1950s when comics in Japan begin to overtake American comics and that's then why starting in the in the late 1970s and then the early 1980s when sort of American comics artists and audiences begin to discover Japanese manga, and of course, at that point, the the close connection between the two, right? That originally they were actually the same thing. That the the most successful manga in pre-war Japan were essentially American comic strips, and that that's kind of the 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 what I would say the main origins of modern manga. That history at that point has been completely forgotten, and because manga have changed in some ways stylistically, they then appear as this foreign thing to American and and other audiences around the world. And because manga at that point have become so much more diverse than comics in other countries uh, and and then also more commercially successful, right? Over the course of the nineties and the two thousands with like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball and then Naruto and stuff like that, that uh, comics artists in other countries start adopting Stylistic influences from manga, so the 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 direction of influence completely inverts, right? Whereas originally Japan was eagerly taking in all of the elements of American comics, and now it's American comics where sort of the, the eyes start getting bigger, right? And like the the facial shapes are more simplified, and sort of American artists, uh, mainstream artists are often trying to make their their works look more like Japanese manga.
2: That is um, very, um, how do I say, ironic in a way. Um, we, we see Japanese manga being influenced by American manga early on, and now it's completely reversed. But it also as this process that your book um, shows that demonstrates, um, there is this sort of romanticization of manga. Um, we are trying to, or at least, um, I guess, Japan Japanese cultural lovers um, and Japan, maybe the Japanese government in the Core Japan Project, are trying to elevate manga to a status of um, representative Japanese culture or a cultural icon. Um, or even traditional art, as the uh, case of Choju Giga shows. So how do you reconcile with this narrative, and what's really behind the booming of manga?
1: Yes, so the embrace of manga as part of the Cool Japan initiative is kind of ironic, because originally in uh, the 1930s, the, the militaristic, the, the military government of Japan was very skeptical of manga because it was essentially a foreign form, right? It was the, the foreign origins of manga, the primarily American origins of, of manga at the time had not been forgotten yet. And so everything, and of course, there were already plenty of diplomatic tensions between Japan and the United States at that point, and of course, the military was generally wary of foreign influence. So uh, beginning in the 1930s, you sort of see this, this skepticism towards towards comics in Japan. And then in uh, 1936, the government actually uh, enacts an ordinance that, that regulates what sort of tr- stories and, and media that are aimed at children should look like. And then actually... Um, Of course, then when Japan enters the Pacific War against the United States, uh, you see uh, comics almost disappear for a while. So especially speech balloons, which I think were most emblematic of this new medium, um, the government kind of preferred this more traditional picture story form that was kind of seen as less modern and less foreign. Uh, but then, of course, now that manga are this this huge booming industry, and once people in other countries started seeing manga as something interesting and eagerly consuming it, the the Japanese government uh, embraced it as something that could actually bolster the image of Japan abroad. Um, but at the same time, sort of then emphasize the the origins of manga, as something specific specifically Japanese, right? Because if you're using comics as something to to boost the, Japan's image overseas, it's then very tempting to also say that this is something that is inherently Japanese, right? This is not just a variant of this universal art form. This is something that's specifically Japanese, that's traditionally Japanese. And that's also when the government starts teaching this connection between modern manga and Hoksa and the Chujugiga, to middle school children, and there are curricular guidelines enacted by the Ministry of Education in Japan that specifically mention these picture scrolls and then manga by artists such as Hokusai as early forms of manga. So this is actually that is something that is now taught in school to Japanese people. So it's very hard, which is part of the reason why I why the the subtitle of my book is a revisionist history because. A, the way that the history is portrayed is revisionist in that it seeks to sort of eradicate uh, from history the the actual process by which modern manga developed and sort of substitute this, what I think is a mostly misleading history of these ancient origins of manga, something that's developed over hundreds of years. But then also, of course, my book is trying to revise that official history. Um. Yeah. Did I did I get off track? Did that answer your question?
2: No. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Um. We see these revisions of history going on everywhere, and it's just um, funny that it's happening to manga when um, when we have scholars of, say, pre-modern Japanese literature trying to cut ties, between the between chōjūgiga and manga, whereas official history textbooks are trying to reconnect them
1: yeah i I, I, I already got uh i I already got bashed on twitter by um a group of japanese right-wingers who discovered my book and then said it was anti-japanese and it's not i just want to reassure anyone who's listening that my book is not anti-japanese at all and i think i don't understand i mean so I, i understand the eagerness of portraying Manga is something that's inherently Japanese, right? There is a strong incentive for the government to do that. If you're a nationalist, there's a strong incentive to do that. If you're a scholar of Japan, there's an incentive to do that. Because if Japanese comics are just one form of comics, right? Then you also have to learn about the history and you study manga. You also have to learn about the history of comics in general. But if you see it as something that's purely Japanese, you don't... And if that is your main field of research or your main interest... Then, by seeing manga, something that's specifically Japanese, you don't have to deal with all of this other non-Japanese stuff, which is, I think, essential to actually understanding the the history of manga. But it did already get some pushback, not only from uh, the group of right wingers on Twitter, but also uh, an early peer reviewer actually just completely hated the idea of my book and just flat out said Japanese manga deserve to be treated on their own, which I think is an interesting approach to take to an art form. I I don't think art forms inherently are deserving uh, of of particular treatment, but that's a different question.
2: Well, I hope our listeners don't take this book the wrong way. I found it interesting myself, so I hope um, other people do as well.
1: Oh thank you but, I, mean, yeah. I do think it's it's an incredible success story. I mean it shows the how immensely creative Japanese artists were and I think it's a it's really fascinating i think great that even already a hundred years ago right this was a global culture i mean of course the 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 direction of influence was fairly one sided. But um, I think it is fascinating that people in so many different countries were reading and and looking at the same materials and laughing about the same jokes. I think that's a from sort of a a humanist perspective. I think that's a very encouraging story.
2: Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful conversation. I sure learned a lot about manga.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: And for our listeners to learn more about the history of manga and its connection with uh, Euro-American manga, make sure you check out this book, Comics and the Origins of Manga, A Revisionist History, by Dr. Aika Exner. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Until our next episode, goodbye.